0: Thanks for tuning in to the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. We're a group of sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and here you will hear the word of God. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is an honor and privilege to share the word of God with the Saints of Durban Memorial Baptist Church again this week. This week I had the opportunity to uh, hang out with a, a brother from the church and we were talking about unbelief. I don't remember every detail that we had in our conversation, but it began with talking about just how silly it is for someone not to believe in God. In the the world of apologetics, apologetics is the technical word for defending the faith. But in apologetics, there are a variety of different types of arguments that you can use to support the existence of God. Uh, and from seeing that he exists, leads someone to believe in him. Some point in one of the arguments to the complexity of creation. The sheer beauty and order that we see around us in the world and, and beyond. Such a universe necessitates an external cause from beyond just a random smashing of atoms to get where we are today. That is part of what's called the cosmological argument, if you want to get the technical terms there. Others will make an argument based on the existence of morals. We talked about this in my Sunday school class this morning. Morals have no place in a survival of the fittest paradigm. There is no reason not to just plunder my, uh, my neighbor's house if it is survival of the fittest, right? Where did these morals come from? It makes sense that a moral law written upon all of our hearts would come from a moral law giver, a higher being, God. This is the moral argument. And those are just a couple of the the various approaches to apologetics in a very wide field that serve as a defense of the Christian faith. But despite what I would see as clear evidence of divinity, it is still not good enough for many. They remain unconvinced. They still say there is no God. Further, as I was talking with my brother about unbelief, I brought up that there's really two kinds of unbelief in some ways. There's explicit unbelief, which is what I just mentioned, saying there is no God. That is an explicit unbelief. I am pronouncing, announcing, I do not believe in God. But then there is also implicit belief, unbelief. Implicit unbelief is when someone may say with their mouth that they believe there is God, but their actions would suggest otherwise. This is living as if there is no God, even if you might say he exists if you were asked. I want to read you a couple of verses of scripture from Psalm 14. Psalm 14 says, "The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one there's none who does good." Flip to Psalm 53, verse 1. "The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. There is none who does good." I'm going to break this down in a second, but first I'm going to give you a little bit of homework. This is just something cool I found in my Bible study today or this week. Luke or Psalm 14 and 53. Look those up this week. You'll you'll see that they're almost identical with one another. Just a few small differences between the two of them. Both of them attributed to King David. When you think about the, the book of Psalms as a hymn book, it's kind of funny. David wrote them both and they're very similar, but they would have been sung to different melodies. In some ways, it's like Chris Tomlin remixing Amazing Grace for us or something. Look into that this week. That's just a a rabbit I wanted to chase, but I'm bringing it right back, okay? For our purposes this morning, note that in Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, the Bible is repetitive, but it's repetitive on purpose. It reiterates the idea here that needs to sink into our thick skulls. It needed to be said, said twice. The overarching theme of both Psalms, 14 and 53, is the salvation of the Lord given to undeserving people? But right now, I want to just focus on those first 10 words. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. It is utterly foolish not to believe in the existence of the heavenly creator. It's foolish. It is foolish to explicitly say there is no God. But look further at this verse. The psalmist does not write that it is simply foolish to say there is no God with our mouths. He says the fool says it in his heart. We talked about heart. I bring that idea up because it happens all throughout scripture. The heart is referring to the innermost part of our being. It is you behind closed doors. It's where the mental and the morals meet. It's where the, 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 the innermost true you is. Some can profess with their mouth that they believe in God, but if in the core of their being they do not believe, if there is no fruit of faith, no desire for holiness, then they are nothing but a fool. Today, we're going to be going through the story of Saul, and we're going to be called to a full, F-U-L-L, hearted belief. The wisest thing you could ever do is repent from your sins and believe in God. You can turn to Psalm, or I'm sorry, 1 Samuel chapter 13 right now if you'd like. But before we get there, I want to press a little bit deeper into the concept of belief and foolishness. There are studies, as you're turning there, that that show an inverse correlation between religious belief and IQ. Now, that's a fancy way of saying that in general, by earthly standards, non-believers are smarter people than believers in God, according to the studies. First of all, what we see here in Psalm 14 and 53 proves that wrong. I don't care what your IQ is if you aren't bright enough to see the existence of the creator of this world. Secondly, even if that is completely true, even if by all measurable standards, the non-believers are that much smarter than believers, I would rather be dumbstruck by my savior than be able to accurately calculate the area of the paver stones on the pathway to hell. Further even than that, dear Christian, though you may not appear like much before this world that thinks it knows so much better than you do, hold on to this in 1 Corinthians. Paul writes, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in this world to shame the wise, weak, lowly creatures saved by the grace of God. The world may call that foolish, but we have been given wisdom from God. We've been given righteousness, sanctification and redemption. Y'all, we can boast, not in our own intellect, but in the Lord. With that in mind, let's get into 1 Samuel chapter 13. We're picking up here after the renewing of the kingdom in chapters 11 and 12. We're going to start seeing the deficiency of Saul as king. We're going to be primarily focusing this morning on Saul's lack of belief as shown through his actions, but we'll get to that. I want to walk to there first. So we'll start in verse 1. Saul lived for one year and then became king, and when he had reigned for two years over Israel... I'm going to pause here for just a brief second because it's an interesting Bible study. No, I don't want you. uh, I don't want to completely overlook what's considered to uh, a difficult verse to translate. I want to let you know that this is in scripture. This is a a challenge from interpreters. Depending on the translation that you see there, you might uh, you might see this. Uh, look a little bit differently and I I did some study on the verses this week and we could spend a whole lot of time breaking down uh, this verse and some say 30 years there's a whole lot going on in there but I'd rather just get to the main point here this morning and have you send me an email if you want deeper discussion on this uh, section of scripture here All, all scholars agree here that in this verse, what we are seeing, what we need to understand to understand the rest of the text, is we are formally transitioning to the commencement of Saul's reign as king. All we need to know about this verse, what we're reading from here, Saul is king, okay? Saul is king. He's formally acting as king. For us to better understand what takes place next in Saul's life, we need to think back on the instructions that Saul was given. Initially, when he was anointed king from Samuel, I won't have you turn there now, but Saul was instructed to go to Gibeah. This is back when he was first anointed. He was instructed to go to Gibeah, handle the Philistine garrison that is there. And then after that, uh, after he took care of the Philistine uh, garrison there, he was to go to Gilgal, where Samuel would meet him and offer up uh, an offering to God. So now, that's where Saul that's what he's been told to do. Now he's king. He's acting a king. Now let's pick up in verse 2. Saul chose 3000 men of Israel 2,000 were with Saul and Michmash uh, in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan and Gibeah of, of Benjamin. The rest of the people were sent, uh, he sent home, every man to his tent. So the king here is doing what the people wanted him to do. He's fortifying the military force. Uh, this makes a whole lot of sense. The Israelites had been challenged by the Ammonites. We looked at that last time. The pesky Philistines are still hanging around the country. Uh, The the people's intention in having a king was to have someone fight their battles for them. So Saul makes a logical decision here. He's getting the army ready. Verses 3 and 4. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. And Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear, and all Israel heard it and said Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were called to join Saul at Gilgal. Surprisingly for us who have just brushed up on the instructions that Saul had been given, it was not Saul who physically, personally dealt with the Philistine garrison, but his son Jonathan. Nonetheless, Saul directed it to happen, so he's credited with the victory here. So... Saul uh, has a victory there in verse three. Giba is either another name for Gibeah or it's a town of similar name located somewhere between Gibeah and Michmash. So the battle's won. The Philistines hear about this battle, uh, meaning the, the rest of the nation beyond that small garrison there in Gibeah is now on alert. The Philistines are gearing up for battle. Saul blows a horn, makes sure all the Israel know, uh, all the Israelites know about it and gives notice to them. This is a call to arms. Battle is about to go down. Tension had already existed between the Israelites and the Philistines, but now things are heating up. Saul calls everyone to go to Gilgal. We have to uh, take a second and ask why Gilgal? Well, understand, this is happening in the context of the instructions Saul was given chapters before. Uh, After the garrison was taken care of, Saul was supposed to go to Gilgal and wait for Samuel to make an offering. We saw that earlier in 1 Samuel, I believe, uh, uh, chapter 10. So, let's keep going. Verses 5-7. through The Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashores in multitude. They came up and they encamped at Michmash uh, to the east of beth When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead, and Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. So, just like I said, giving you the lay of the land here. Mighty, massive Philistine army is now gathered against Saul and Israel. Y'all done crossed us one time too many. The army is as vast as the sands on the seashore in multitude. That was set up there in Michmash. Saul had been in this city just before this previous attack, but now all of Israel is huddled up in Gilgal, further to the east of Michmash. They're, they're going away from where the, battle, or where the troops are. And as they heard the reports of this massive army, terror strikes the Israelites' hearts. They are scared to death. They scatter into the countryside, hiding, literally shaking in their boots. Well, I guess they're sandals. Okay. Saul, however, to his credit, does not hide. Saul remains in Gilgal. He was that king. He was doing what he was instructed to do. He was instructed to wait, waiting on Samuel to arrive. And now we arrive where we're going to park at for a while. We're coming to the place that I want us to give the most attention. It's where Saul makes his blunder. This is where we see foolishness and unbelief merge together. Look at verses 8 and 9. Saul waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel. But Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering with the enemy, vast, seemingly closing in. Saul had been holding on to hope that Samuel was going to step in. He was going to make the sacrifice and. All would be well. But the time is waning and so is Saul's hope. So is Saul's patience. The the word so there at the beginning of verse 9 is interesting. So Saul. It's an interesting term of conclusion. Saul didn't see Samuel. So he takes things into his own hands. He goes forward with the offering. But remember the connection I've been mentioning here back to the original instructions that Saul was given. God's prophet Samuel says he's going to come and he's going to offer the burnt offerings and the peace offerings. This is God's prophet talking to Saul, saying, This is what's going to happen after that garrison's taken care of, after you go to Gilgal. Saul's willingness to dismiss the prophet is tantamount to discarding the word of the Lord. Saul's rushing of things here is not just a sin against Samuel. It's not just a lack of faith in Samuel. It shows a lack of faith in God. Church, we so often fall into sin when we're surrounded by the pressures of the world and we try to take the situation into our own hands. We pray to God for rest, but we struggle with waiting. So we turn to a a substance to provide us with a synthetic rest. We desire love and affection. So we run head fast into a union with someone who doesn't love our God and does not seek our uh, relationship to keep it holy. We grow upset with someone who has wronged us. So instead of working on reconciliation or taking it before the church or following the guidance that we've been given in scripture, we're quick to just sever off the relationship and be done with it completely. Now, that list is far from exhaustive, but the point remains, we find ourselves in an uncomfortable position. And instead of holding tightly to the instructions the Lord has given us in our haste to get through the situation, we would rather give in to sin. Let's see how things unfold for Saul. Look at verse 10. Soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Silly Saul should have stayed steady. Say that 10 times fast. Silly Saul should have stayed steady. But just moments after he rushed that sacrifice, Samuel walks up. I'm giving, this is Brad's, Uh, opinion here conjecture here okay what i what i think when i read this situation i think saul instantly knew he done messed up saul goes out of the city to meet samuel at the gate and this is a great sign of respect a cultural sign of respect in that time and i think maybe a little bit of trying to ease the tension before admitting what he's done look at the next two verses samuel says what have you done and Saul said, When I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you didn't come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at mcmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I've not sought the favor of the Lord, so I forced myself and I offered the burnt offering. Saul does what many of us do when we're caught with our hands in the cookie jar. He tries to blame everything on something else. This time, it's on the circumstances that he's found himself in. But uh, uh, but 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 Samuel, all, all the people left me, and I was waiting for you, and it got to be the seventh day, and it was the morning time, and you weren't here yet, and uh, uh, you weren't here, and the army is just so big, and I just knew I was supposed to give this offering, even though you told me I wasn't supposed to. I just knew I had to do it. Saul sounds like a bumbling child trying to defend himself after getting caught playing with matches. I I, I didn't know I was supposed to. My friend at school said I could do it. you didn't tell me that I could burn the whole house down. I was just curious. That happened to me. Saul has tried to justify his actions by his circumstances. How does Samuel respond? Verses 13 through 14. Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established a kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people. Because you have not kept the Lord's command. God's prophet has told God's first king of God's people God's declaration. Saul would not be the king whose progeny retains the kingship in Israel. Saul's sin, Saul's lack of obedience, Saul's lack of faith, Saul's foolish disbelief has proven to be his undoing. We should all take note that the circumstances around Saul did not change the seriousness of this consequence. I know all of us are well aware we live in a dark world. You're going to face different types of oppression. If you're living righteously, you'll probably be the recipient of mocking and consternation. People are going to try to tempt you to participate in all sorts of lewd activities. Even unseen by mortal eyes, we deal with rulers, authorities, cosmic powers in present darkness, spiritual forces of evil, and the very schemes of the devil. Our world is broken. Our world is full of sin. All of that is very true. That is real reality. But nonetheless, it is appointed for man to die once. And after that comes judgment. And just as Saul's circumstances made no difference on his guilt, neither will yours. Some of the folks in this room have seen sights so horrendous the rest of us couldn't imagine. You have had wretched things happen around you, happen to you. For that, we lament. We long for the day where there will be no more pain, no more tears. But even if that is your circumstance, the command is the same be holy. As I am holy, thus says the Lord. Feeling pressure from the fallenness of the world around you is no excuse to sin against the Lord. In fact, it should honestly draw us to serve Him all the more. Our situation is not a license to sin. Unlike Saul, we've been given the full testament of scripture here. When it feels like the world is crashing down around us and the enemy's forces are strong and there seems to be no hope on the horizon, may we sing together Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though its mountains tremble, at its swelling verse 8 come and behold the works of the Lord how he has brought desolations from the earth he makes war cease to the end of the earth he breaks the bow bow and shatters the spear he burns the chariots with fire be still and know that I am God he says I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Though the world may be falling around, the Lord is the only refuge. When you are tempted, To act on your own, to take matters into your own hands. Be still and know he is God. The God you love will be exalted. He will be lifted above the earth. That God is with us. He is with all who believe in him. He has given us his Holy Spirit. He has given us his word to guide us. We feel conviction. We repent. We seek the things that are above by the grace of God. Yes, the world is dark. Yes, the world is scary. Yes, you are going to be challenged to the point of exhaustion, but your God is greater. That is, if you truly know God, You've been saved by grace through faith in the Son. I mentioned before in this series that there's a lot of debate over whether King Saul is saved. That's a question we can't answer, really. Only God can see where the division of soul and spirit of joint and marrow, only God can discern the heart. But I can say that in our text this morning, Saul acted with implicit unbelief. And there are consequences for acting against God. Let's see how this situation concludes in verses 15 through 23. Samuel rose and went up from Gilgal, and the rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went from Gilgal to Gibeah of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600 men. Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba of Benjamin with the Philistines and camped at Michmash. Uh, And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned to Ophrah, to the land of Shul. Another company turned toward Beth And another company turned towards the borders that looked down on the valley of Zeboam towards the wilderness. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout the land of Israel, for the, Is- the Philistines had said, Lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Philistines went down to the Philist- or every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, his- or his shickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting up the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan, but Saul and Jonathan, and his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to pass to the pass of Machaerus. Recap: The prophet departs. A few meager souls stick around with Saul. In that moment, an army of thousands is now down to about six hundred. The Philistines are still in the land. There was no great blessing that Saul had hoped to procure through the sacrifice. Saul and his son and some others head out pretty close to where the the Philistines have planted roots. And the Philistines are sending raiding parties out to scatter the people of Israel all around and to take away resources. It is almost certain that Saul and Jonathan would have been unsettled to watch all this unfold. We're also given a little history lesson in this section. The Philistines have been in the land so long. They've been dominating the Israelites so long that the Israelites had no blacksmiths. They weren't able to make their own weapons or maintain them. The Philistines have been extorting the Israelites for simple maintenance on their farming equipment. Things are rough. We're going to get into the specifics of the battle that follows from here next week. But the picture that we're given in this moment is intentionally bleak. The Philistines have every earthly advantage. They outnumber, they have the weapons, they have the forces. So much so that as this battle is about to unfold, Saul and Jonathan are the only ones with weapons. That's what you see in verse 22. This is a fearful situation. But it's fearful for much more than just what we see written in the text. The really fearful situation of the Israelites, specifically Saul, was not the Philistines. It was the Lord God who had made it clear through his prophet that what he required of his people and their king was obedience. That was what's really fearful. They had failed sinned against God
1: we don't see that when we read this
0: We, we stick to the uh to the scary forces that we can see very often we don't stick to it we find it hard to see because honestly we're a lot like Saul there's been a lot of modern scholars who debate about Saul and when they get to this situation they they often suggest that Saul got kind of a bad rap It wasn't fair for him to be cut off for one simple little mistake. It was just one little offering. As we're walking through this, we might even be tempted to say, man, I sympathize with Saul because I too find that to obey God fully, to really trust God, really, that's beyond me. In the circumstances that I find myself in, that's just, it's too hard. But don't forget, as you were looking at your situation, as we're looking at Saul's situation, Saul was called a fool for his misdeeds, for his sin, in the inerrant work word of God. Saul was a fool, much like all of us. And in our flesh, we remain foolish, Living in the flesh is foolish. By the grace of God, the true king gives victory to a people that can never be taken away from them. The true king is capable of saving people from their foolish blunders and never makes any blunders of his own. The intention of the message today is to show the seriousness of unbelief, both stated and implied. Our circumstances, the things surrounding us are no excuse. There are consequences for every single sin. If you are here this morning and you know the Lord, you are one of those who serve Christ as King. Remember that every foolish sin you ever have or ever will commit was paid for by Jesus Christ on the cross. But also remember that your life right now is to be used in service to the true king. Make your king proud. Don't show disbelief. In living against the commands he has for you in your life. Be resolved to continue to grow in his likeness. But I've said this before and I will have to say this again. If you do not know the Lord, you are a fool. And I don't say this as an attempt to tear you down. As an attempt to be smug above you by no means. Because I was a fool too. But by the grace of God, through the proclamation of his word and the life, death and resurrection of his son, he opened my eyes, my heart and my mind to see what should have been so obvious all along. You see, here's the situation. Our sin makes us into fools. Living in a broken world. Brokenness all around us, and our foolish minds think that we can work ourselves out, figure out one of the ways to escape brokenness, but it just keeps leading back into more and more brokenness. As fools, we're stuck. But God. The perfect holy God whom we sin against. The reason we know what morals are, the reason we know what sin is, is because God is holy and in being made in the image of God. We know that sin doesn't sit right. Because we've sinned against that God, we were stuck in our brokenness. But that perfect holy God sent his son, sent Jesus Christ, to out of heaven to live a perfectly righteous life, to be killed on a cross and placed in a tomb, and to rise on the third day so that all who repent of their sins see the glory of God, believe in him, believe in Jesus as Lord, and confess him before others would be reconciled to God. God showed his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ, the true king, king of kings, Lord of lords, ruler of kings on earth, the Messiah, the anointed one, prophet, priest, and king, died so that all who believe in him would share also in his resurrection so that we too might walk in newness of life. If you're finding that brokenness is what your life is defined by, know this, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We are reconciled to the perfect, holy God who loved us. And we know that because Christ died for us. It says in Scripture, if we deny him before man, he'll deny us before God. We're to make our faith publicly known. If you've been saved for some time, I hope that your faith is publicly known. For coming to understand this truth for the first time, I invite you to make your faith publicly known. To say, Church, I see Christ as King. You can do that today. Come forward during this hymn of response. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity to see your word, to see how a broken king points us to the King of Kings. To know that we are broken. Our sin, our sinful nature deep within us prevents us from understanding you, who you are, from understanding and obtaining righteousness. But in your great love, you sent Jesus to give us righteousness. He who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Lord, I just thank you for the amazing grace and gospel that you've given to us. Lord, I pray that you are calling sinners home that those who have been previously stuck in their brokenness this day have seen the glorious, true King and be resolved to serve Him in their lives. Make that publicly known. Lord, that all of us, whether we made a profession of faith some time ago or even just recently, Lord, that we would make You known in our daily lives and we would tell those You have sovereignly placed around us where the King is. The King, the victor, who we share in His victory. Lord, work through us, that we would be ambassadors for Christ. Imploring others, be reconciled to the Holy God. You make your appeal through us. What a grace it is that you would make your appeal through a foolish creature like us. May we cherish that responsibility, not boastfully in ourselves, but boasting in the King who saved us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Durban Memorial Baptist Church podcast. If you want to find out more about our church, you can check out www.durbanchurch.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can give us a call or text to 859-813-0369. Also, you can shoot us an email at brad at durbanchurch.org. Have a wonderful day and God bless.